and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Gerald Baker, co-head of the Center of Wealth Planning Excellence at Boston Private, as well as the head of Trust and Fiduciary Services. Today, we're going to dig into a topic that is often overlooked as part of a robust financial and estate plan, opportunities to leverage your portfolio for borrowing. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss lending as part of financial planning. So I'm privileged to be joined by my colleague today, Karen Roses, who is our head of private lending at Boston Private and is responsible for strategizing and developing custom credit solutions and products for high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals and families. Karen brings over 20 years of experience structuring complex and creative private loans. So Karen, to get us started, why do people borrow? Well, Gerald, why do people borrow? It's a good question. Um, Often it's to gain something. So you're buying a house or real estate, um, cars, boats. Perhaps it's to invest in an education for yourself or for a child, Um, starting a company or doing house renovations. Um, Other than gaining something, you can also use lending or you can use credit to avoid um, using your cash savings It allows you to bridge your income. So if you have a lumpy income or cash flow, you can use a line of credit to help pay for the items that you want or need in the moment and then pay back that balance once your income comes in. We see this often with a lot of our um, private equity clients who are required to make sometimes very large capital calls and um, they may not be receiving distributions until later on in their income cycle. So um, PE capital calls, and then just for emergencies, just to have um, an ability to dip into some type of liquidity or cash flow availability um, for for anything that may happen over the course of the year. So another reason that people borrow is to fund tax payments, whether it's quarterly tax payments, um, bridging income, or um, annual tax payments in April or October. Um, and, and taxes have uh, a lot of people want to avoid them. And so there are ways that you can strategize using leverage to help offset or even avoid taxes. One case in particular is um, for clients who have inherited or amassed um, stock that has a low cost basis, rather than selling those shares as the stock appreciates or has appreciated, you can um, leverage those shares and use a line of credit to fund other investments or um, personal discretionary needs. In one particular situation, we had a client who had um, sold his company and had um, spent years, decades, watching stock um, appreciate, and he was in his 90s. And the family was trying to determine how do we diversify? How do we ensure that we can continue to make capital calls um, and other investments without selling these shares? And so we put a pretty significant line of credit in place. And um, it would allow the family and the client to have that liquidity, knowing that at his death, the cost basis of the shares would step up and he wouldn't be responsible for the capital gains, yet he would still be able to sell and pay back the outstanding balance on the line of credit. Um, That's one particular example. Other examples include using debt to um, 
fund investments that could, and the interest on those debt facilities could be characterized as investment interest expense. So working with your accountant, you can make a determination if that's something that could help with offsetting your taxes. And then of course, the one that everyone knows a lot about is the mortgage interest deduction. And if you put a mortgage in place, you can deduct the interest up to a principal amount of $750,000. So those are, those are some examples of why people use debt. You know, Karen, that's a really interesting thing because I often think that our clients, or at least the ones that I've experienced with you and, and others, don't necessarily think of debt as part of an efficient tax strategy for tax mitigation, um, whether it be the deductibility of interest uh, for those credit facilities or leveraging those credit facilities to um, mitigate realizing capital gains on very low basis stock. So it also becomes an integral component of looking at your broader estate and financial planning needs, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think everyone has a certain comfort level with debt. And, it, and when you're thinking about how you can be the most efficient with your portfolio, all of your assets, taxes, and planning into the future, um, leverage is a tool. And it's something that should be considered as you have those conversations. Absolutely. So when, you, when you're thinking about leverage as a tool and you're thinking about having, you know, helping a client frame their perspective on a credit facility or leveraging uh, debt as a tool, um, how do you work with clients to determine what is the right amount of debt to have? Well, again, it all comes back to the individual. Um, in most cases, it's determining uh, how, how do you feel about debt? Do you have a source of repayment? What's the time frame you're going to keep this debt in place? Um, how low are the interest rates? How much are your payments going to be? Do you have the cash flow to support whatever those um, required monthly payments are? So that's the first piece of it. Um, from a bank perspective, the way that um, institutions, financial institutions typically look at um, debt service or a client's ability to repay debt is to calculate the um, monthly expenses that an individual has. And that would be loan payments, credit card payments, and then they compare it to monthly income. So whatever your cash flow is that comes in over the course of the month. So taking a mortgage, for example, um, the max amount that um, banks will allow is a 43% uh, debt to income ratio. So back in the envelope, what you do is you take your, your income and you multiply it by 4.3. And that's the total amount of debt that you can support. Now, this is to qualify for a loan. And for many people, it would be a really uncomfortable amount. Like it's a lot of debt. So um, it doesn't take into account any savings that you have. Like if you're putting away money for 401k or if you have a child in private school or your, you know, your spend rate might be um, a little higher one year over another. So, um, so I typically advise clients to look at more of a 35% debt to income, and that will give you a bit more cushion. So you can think you can take the trip to Disney and not need to worry about it. Um, but there are other times when, you know, a client knows that there's going to be a windfall, but there's going to be some type of transaction, whether it's selling a portion of the com a company that they own or, you know, getting a distribution from a trust or an investment. And um, if that is a moment where they're bridging Illiquid, their illiquid time until that windfall comes in, then you can start to be more strategic about how you use and set up debt. Perhaps you get a little bit more than um, you would normally get as long as the bank allows for it. Um, but you start to think about what are the sources of repayment, and that's how a banker would look at it too. 
imagine over the past few years with record low interest rates and, and us anticipating record low interest rates for at least an interim period of time forward, that it's quite cost effective for our clients who are looking to pursue credit facilities for these bridging and, and liquidity needs uh, to leverage uh, uh, borrowing to do that. Is that? Absolutely. So LIBOR, um, 30-day floating LIBOR has been under 20 basis points, which makes it incredibly attractive. No doubt you heard about mortgage rates being extremely low. Um, I know in the housing um, markets, there's a lot of all-cash offers and people are trying really hard to um, get into properties where there's a low supply, high demand community. So we see a lot of um, leveraging to bridge a transaction of that sort um, so that they know that once they sell their property that, that they're um, moving out of, they're going to be able to pay it down. But yes, yes, rates have been driving an awful lot of borrowing, both individually and commercially. That's a great perspective. I appreciate that. So Karen, as, as we look at, at debt as, as a bridge for certain liquidity event needs, as a bridge um, uh, for tax strategy, um, how does how does debt fit into an estate plan? When you're looking at trusts and investment vehicles, um, what are you typically seeing uh, as opportunities to leverage debt as a solution in those scenarios? Well, first I would say, as you're writing your estate plan and working with an attorney or a fiduciary specialist like yourself, Gerald, that the clients need to be aware of if they're going to need to borrow against those assets that they're moving out of their name and into the name of a trust. Um, revocable trusts or family trusts, you know, are the, typically the vehicles that are established during your lifetime. And um, I have watched many clients who, you know, think that they're not going to need debt suddenly decide, I want to buy my child a house. I want to help fund my grandchildren's education. And um, I don't want to sell the stock, the bonds, whatever the um, holdings are in that trust. So I'd like to borrow against them. And you need to have a trust that allows for the pledgeability of those assets. So that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing is just to become aware that it's no longer the grantor, the person who's creating the trust's um, assets. So the trustee is the one who would be signing on all that documentation, whether it's an application or a loan agreement. And um, there's some people that it's, they think of it as their own funds and it's just kind of setting this legally, you do need to have the, the proper parties um, signing off on the, on the loan. The second one would be um, an irrevocable trust. Um, this is typically when um, assets are moved out of your state for the benefit of a spouse or children. Um, they occur often at your death. They can be established beforehand, of course. But um, we, in, with irrev trusts, we see a lot of beneficiaries asking if they can borrow against assets that have not yet been distributed to them. And so if you are setting up irrevocable trusts for um, the next generation, you want to think about, is that something you want to allow them to do? It provides flexibility, but it can also, um, you know, it can, if you have a person who's not financially um, comfortable, it could start to create some stressors on them um, because they're borrowing against assets that aren't really theirs. Now, that's an um, interesting concept, um, just to interject there for a second, Karen, because you not only have to get the beneficiary to understand the value, the potential value of a loan, you also have to get the trustee engaged to agree that that is something that would be advisable for the benefit of the beneficiary, right? So you're dealing with multiple parties with different perspectives and vested interests. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in many cases, um, you know, the trust is set up for, for long term. And it may not be just one set of beneficiaries. It may be something that, you know, will go to the next generation. And so the trustee becomes very aware of, um, you know, just how to financially manage it. And in some cases, debt makes sense, especially if you're bridging that um, liquidity moment or liquidity transaction. In other cases, it doesn't make sense. And that becomes, um, it's at the trustee's discretion. That's great. Thank you. Um, now, the other one I see, and this falls into the era of trust category, is the dynasty trust. Um, and a lot of clients who are going through a liquidity transaction, like selling a company, um, they'll do a lot of planning up front. And I know you've worked with many of these clients, Gerald, and I'm sure you've heard plenty of these stories. Um, I think it's it's really important to point out that um, a lot of clients will tend to shift. Like They get all excited. You know, They want to make sure that they're doing um, the structuring in a way that's going to protect them, protect their families, you know, reduce uh, taxes. But they'll shift all of their personal liquidity into these vehicles. And um, then once you do that, you reduce the ability to get benefit from those assets. And so if you set up a, um, a loan or you want to borrow against those assets, it, it can undo some of the benefits of the trust. So these are the types of conversations that I often get involved in, um, in, in terms of making sure that we're not doing anything that's going to disrupt the estate plan, but also helps to provide the liquidity and whatever that solution is that the client needs. Um, I remember very clearly I had one client who had sold a medical device company, moved everything out of his estate, and then found this amazing property that he wanted to buy and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to access the funds of the trust. And the reality was he couldn't do it. And sometimes you can overplan having conversations and, and, you know, keeping perspective of what you need and taking care of yourself too, prior to, um, you know, giving it to your children or to the next generation. Um, the final ones that we see a lot of are LLCs and FLPs. So limited liability companies and family limited partnerships. And again, as wealth starts to grow, you start to get into more sophisticated vehicles. And um, the banks, if you're doing a loan against these types of um, these types of entities will want to trace back the source of funds. They'll want to know who the owner of the um, entity is. And sometimes it becomes quite layered. So it's just collecting all of the operating agreements and documentation to ensure um, that the banks truly understand who the, who the decision maker is and who has the power to sign on it. Um, the other thing to think about, too, is, is a legal concept called consideration. You probably know this very well, Gerald. Um, you know, and I'll give an example. Um, we had a client who was um, wanted a trust to borrow, and uh, the collateral was held in three investment LLCs. And in this case, we um, we needed to have the LLCs as pledgers, the trust as a borrower, but you still needed the trust, um, or I'm sorry, the LLCs as guarantors. And it's because, and help me with this one, Gerald, if you are borrowing and you don't have benefit with the collateral, um, then legally it could be seen as, um, you know, the loan is not. It, it, as a defective, it hasn't been perfected. Yeah, you're, you 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 don't need help there, Karen. You you took it home. <laughs> you're absolutely correct. So so oftentimes clients will be like, I just don't understand why we need an extra layer. Like, why is there this guarantee? And it's just a structuring component. But ultimately, you know, borrowing provides lots of flexibility. And when you work with the right people who know how to work with complex situations, you can. Um, 
you can gain liquidity and protect your financial and estate plan. And uh, that's what we're here for. You know, it's interesting. I absolutely agree with everything you've said. It's interesting, though, because our our focus and our sort of value proposition of how we engage with our clients is to look at all of these things in an integrated fashion, right? And everything that you've just described, it really jumps out to me that lending estate and tax planning, as well as wealth management more broadly, including investment management, are all integral pieces of the puzzle to create the picture of what your potential lending options are. And, and that's that really jumps out to me as, as yet another example of why a truly integrated delivery model to differentiate how you look at a client's broader situation is so vitally important, whether it be lending, tax mitigation, lending for bridging, tax mitigation, estate planning. You have to look at the bigger picture and then figure out how all of those pieces come together. I couldn't agree more. And I think some of the best teams are the ones that are taking all aspects of the client's picture and working together. Um, at my, my favorite memories of um, client planning are where you have strategists, fiduciary experts, lenders, relationship managers sitting at a table, bouncing off ideas and in front of the client. And the client can just sit back in the chair and watch like that brain power happen and know that it's not just one person. It's not just the client trying to think through all of this, but it's a team of experts who are bringing their best thoughts and their best experiences together to come up with what the best solution is. That's fantastic, Karen. And that's a great summary of what we try to do every day in in private lending, in private wealth management, and private banking is come together to find solutions that meet our clients' needs both today and in the future. Well, I really want to thank you for the time uh, to go over this really, really vital topic that is a key component to providing optionality for our clients. Um, and I want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to your Boston private advisor uh, to discuss your needs or elements of today's conversation. Um, providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is core to our mission. Um, you can also lead, read our latest perspectives on wealth planning by visiting bostonprivate.com. And while you are there, you can subscribe to our newsletters if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox. You can follow at Boston Private on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter for our timely thought leadership and be sure to subscribe to Boston Private Perspectives podcast wherever you prefer to listen. Thank you for tuning in and thanks for joining me today, Karen. Pleasure to be here, Gerald. Hope to do it again soon. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. 
All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.